I'd like to read two passages of Scripture this morning, and first, if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll read the first 11 verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would like to hold your finger there and then turn back to Romans chapter 14, so you'll have that ready. Romans chapter 14, we'll read a passage from this chapter. We also read first from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first 11 verses. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He is metaphorically speaking of the body in which we reside. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought for us the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And in light of this solemn judgment that all must face, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, that is, there should be a genuine reverence and fear of God. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are manifest in your conscience. In Romans chapter 14 and verses 9 through 12, we read, For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Very solemn things we read in these chapters in God's holy word. I can remember when in dispensational premillennialism that there are these teachings that you have different types of judgment, several different comings, second comings of Christ and so forth. And it would grab people's attention. It was very fanciful a lot of times in trying to grab 
world events and headlines and so forth. And now I view things in a different way. There is coming a judgment. There's coming a final judgment, a consummate judgment. And the thing is that we're not to be taken away with variations, time periods or different things or happenings in the world, but that we're going to stand before God. You're going to stand before the Lord. We're going to stand before the Lord of glory, who is judge of all. There's coming a judgment, it will come so exhaustive that every secret thing ever done, though it be hidden from the eyes of man, does man have a conscience? Yes, because he does in the dark that which he would have no one see. He will engage in things he would be ashamed for anyone to know about, which bespeaks a conscience in man. And conscience is a precursor of judgment to come as well. But they're coming an exhaustive divine judgment. No one will escape that judgment. At that judgment, every thought, every word spoken, every deed committed will be before God, nothing hidden from him. It is called in Scripture the judgment of the great day. The old folks used to call it a day of reckoning that was coming. It will come. It will come. And not one member of the human race, from Adam to the last living soul on earth, shall be absent at that judgment. When, as in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul wrote, when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing hidden from the living God. Nothing hidden from Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. Christ, the Son of God, the very God, a very God is also a perfect man, and he is the judge of all the earth, as he himself declares in John chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23. The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. And to stand before the judgment seat is to give an accounting to God, as in verse 12 here of Romans 14. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. You do realize even our great apostle Paul included himself there. No one will escape that judgment the judgment of the great day. Saved and unsaved, saint and sinner, shall all in that day confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And the righteousness and justice of God shall be fully vindicated in that coming day. And the righteous judgment of God will not be in dispute in that day. There shall not be a voice raised against God. No argument shall be brought forth by those who blame their sins on everybody and everything else but themselves. No place to cry foul. Everything will be open, not only before God, but before the assembled universe. That's a solemn thought, isn't it? No more hiding. No more doing in the secret, in the dark, those things known to be wrong and sinful and dirty and vile. All will be open before God. And the soul shall stand naked in his sight. It's a solemn thing. Conscience may have been stifled. The nagging voice of the soul that testifies to a coming judgment crowded out by the hustle and bustle of activities and the occupation of things and the pleasures sought and the distractions that come, but it will not take place in that day. And it's a solemn thing. Man drowns out the voice of conscience. He drowns out the voice of God if he can He'll give himself to everything to try to distract himself from what is most serious and solemn and true. Nothing in that day shall hide the full disclosure of the true condition of the soul before the great judge of all. Nothing. But I have some good news. The saved, that is, the believer, who has come indeed to Christ and to Christ alone, who has by grace trusted him only as their Lord and their Savior, who has turned from transgression and yielded to Christ as Lord indeed. That soul need not fear being condemned in that day of judgment. They shall appear in that day. There's an accounting of themselves they must give in that day. What they've done or not done. After coming to Christ in truth must be accounted for in that day. But they shall not be condemned. Matthew 25 reveals that in that day of judgment there will be a distinction between the sheep of Christ, those who are redeemed by him, and those who are unsaved. Of course, the declaration of that judgment will be these shall go into everlasting punishment, some into everlasting life. Revelation 20 reveals that the books shall be opened. That's the language of Revelation saying that everything that one has done is recorded. 
is known. But there shall be another book that's opened in that day of judgment. That other book is called the book of life. Yet the believer, the believer shall give account to his Lord and only to his Lord. You and I who've been saved by God's grace, you and I who've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I who are given up to him, you and I who can say with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, we have to give an account of ourselves. That's clearly taught to us in Scripture. The contention of the apostle in our text is that we're not given to judge one another as to what one does in endeavoring to obey the Lord. That's really in the context of Romans chapter 14. That's the prerogative of our Lord, not our prerogative. In verse 4 of Romans 14, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant to his own master? He standeth or falleth. Yea, he, is, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. If there is moral transgression within a congregation that is known, it becomes the responsibility of those in that congregation to make it known and discipline to take place within the congregation. That, of course, is taught clearly in Scripture. But what one does is unto the Lord is not ours to judge. What one does is unto him. Whether one has a conscience to be able to eat certain foods he's talking about or, or observe certain days or not. If he does it unto the Lord. It's not our prerogative to judge that one. But what we want to consider, and it's very solemn indeed, is that the believer will be required the count of him or herself before the judgment seat of Christ. We shall all appear. We shall all have to give an accounting to the Lord. The saved, the believing, as well as the unsaved, shall stand before the great judge in that day. In verse 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In verse 12, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And so we're looking at something very solemn indeed. It will be in that day when every human being, every angel, every demon, the devil himself shall confess to God. And that which shall be confessed, as Paul applies and draws from the 45th chapter of Isaiah, verse 23, and applies in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11, 
that God hath highly exalted the Lord Jesus Christ and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will not be one voice of dissent raised in that great day. No created being shall fail to recognize the Savior who came into the world in the greatest of humility, who humbled himself to the death of the cross, and that he is Lord of all, that he is Lord of creation, that he is Lord of providence, that he is Lord of angels, yea, that he is Lord of lords and King of kings. For the Father hath highly exalted him and given him that name above every name. Angels who at his incarnation joyfully did they confess him as Lord. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. They shall confess in that great day joyfully that Jesus Christ is Lord. Demons, demonic powers, and there are demonic powers in this world. Sometimes I think, if you read Revelation, I think it's chapter 9, the pit opened, the powers of darkness going forth. I think they're there today. I think that pit has been opened in our nation. But when we read in the gospel, demons who confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of God, knowing the force of his glorious power, shall in that day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The unbelieving, the mere professor of Christianity, who would not openly confess him before men, shall in that day confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Every creature, every created being that ever existed in heaven, in earth, or under the earth shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No wonder. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's a solemn thing. We live in a day of frivolities. Oh, entertainments, feel-good religion. Little is heard about these things that shall come, that shall take place. Let men fear they're going to die. Let them give some horrible report from a doctor that they're not going to make it. They become solemn, serious then. Let that pass. They slip right back. If it wasn't true, they slip right back to where they were. When God opens the heart to cause one to understand 
that he is going to be faced in judgment, that he is holy, that he's not simply a God of mercy, he's a God of wrath as well. That sin is the most horrendous thing under God's creation. When that takes place, there's a seriousness. There's a seriousness that comes to the heart of man. But true believers, those whom he called out of the world, those delivered from sin and the wrath to come, by the death and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, those brought to repentance and made to cry now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. Those who know him who died for them and rose again, those who were brought to submit to him as Lord, shall with exceeding joy confess in that day Jesus Christ is Lord. They were saved in time. They shall be saved for eternity. Grace saved them from sin. Saved them for Christ. And shall save them when he comes in his glory and shall sit upon the throne of his glory to judge the world in righteousness in that day. So in the 13th chapter, verse 11, the apostle writes, Knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Or Peter would exhort in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One day he shall appear without announcement. One day he shall come. One day all of history shall be consummated. One day all the human race shall stand before the living God. Not a single individual absent for that judgment. And we who've been brought to him, we who've been bought with the price of his own blood, we who no longer belong to ourselves but to him who loved us and gave himself for us, we are his in life. We shall be his in death. We shall forever dwell with him when our dead bodies are raised to be forever like unto his glorious body. We have much to rejoice in. We have a judgment to face. We have a solemn accounting to give of ourselves. Yea, of our works, not for salvation, but proceeding from our salvation. 
an accounting that we must give of how we used our time, our treasure, our talents, how we made use of what God gave us. We're given a certain amount of time. It's in God's hands. My times are in thy hands, said the psalmist. We're going to be here as long as God wills. We're not going to be here one minute past what he wills. We're given a certain amount of time. This time is determined by the sovereign decree of God. And his redeemed. We're given time to buy up the opportunity to be a witness for Christ. To give ourselves to be a servant to those who are in need. Or whether we wasted our time. We must, uh, we must give an account for the amount of money with which we are entrusted. Whether the kingdom of God is truly first, whether the spread of the gospel is faithfully supported, the needs of others considered, the things of God first in our giving, or whether it was used for selfish purposes. We must give an account for our abilities. The abilities that God has given us just as he teaches us in various parables, whether he's given us ten talents, five talents, two talents, or one. We shall give an accounting for the abilities God has given us. Whether or not we've used them to serve our Lord, to glorify and honor his holy name, to serve each other, and that to the glory of God, or for our own praise. The fear of God has its place in the believer. The fear of God has its place even in those who are saved by God's grace. For we shall give account of our works, even though our works do not save us. That's why you read passages like in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. The following. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, etc., but with the precious blood of Christ. We're to reverence our Heavenly Father. It's written, and it shall be, as here in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as in verse 12, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. When that time comes, or when the time comes and it draws near, and you know the time is drawing near for you to leave this world, there will be a fear 
indeed. But let it be a fear of God. But let us not wait till then to walk in reverence of our Heavenly Father, in believing His Word, His truth. But I think I hear somebody say something, maybe in heart. But I thought all our sins were forgiven. That God would no more remember them. That God placed the righteousness of Christ as ours through faith in Him alone. Tis true. Tis gloriously true. That those who have truly come to Christ, those who have turned their back on sin and on this world of sin, those who rest their souls in the grand truth that Christ alone finished their redemption at the cross, that they are justified through faith alone without works, that's the gospel's good news. They've joyfully received, trusting Christ only, looking to Him alone. We who believe shall not be judged for sin in that day. That judgment has taken place. That judgment for sin is at the cross. Christ died for our sins. He redeemed us from all iniquity. He's removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. The judgment for sin took place at the cross. And God has given the gift of eternal life. It's all by His purpose. There are those who hate the doctrine of predestination, but the doctrine of predestination teaches you and me that our salvation is in God's hands and our destination is in His hands. And when He brings us to Christ, we're going to stand complete in the day of Jesus Christ. The judgment for our sins is past. The Lord Jesus took all the punishment that we were due and assures that those who truly come to Him shall not come into a condemning judgment. He that heareth my word and believeth on Him that sent me hath everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Those are the Lord's words. In this epistle, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. No condemning judgment for the saints that took place. That took place at the cross. So Paul begins that chapter 8 with no condemnation. He ends it with no separation from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so all not hoped in any regard whatsoever on what we have done, but what has been done for us in the person of our glorious Lord. Nothing shall be able to separate us from him who loved us, who gave himself for us, 
because the justice of God against our sins was carried out in full in our place. Our Lord, in the position that belonged to us as sinners, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, giving the joyful sound that his love has redeemed us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. That's the eighth chapter of this epistle in verses 33 and 34. We sang it this morning. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. The gospel is glorious. Salvation is God's business. But though we're gloriously free from the fear of condemnation, we're not free from the fear of God as our Father, who charges us to live godly in Christ Jesus, to no longer live in the way we did, in the ways of the world, in the ways of self-seeking, but to live unto him who died for us and rose again. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and living. Our works shall meet us at the judgment seat of Christ. They shall be brought forth both as evidence of our faith and the measure of our eternal reward. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may give an account of the things done in his body, whether it be good or bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. If, as the gospel clearly declares, that justification and salvation is only by grace through faith, not of works, then why are works? Why are the works of the saved as well as those of the unsaved brought forth in the great day of judgment? What relationship do the works of the believer have to his or her faith? I don't know if it was John Owen or Arthur Pink or one quoting Pink, maybe quoting Owen. But there was something that struck me as absolutely true. We're justified through faith alone. We're justified through faith alone in Christ alone. But not by such a faith that remains alone. That was a tremendous statement. The godly works of the believer will be brought forth. Those works of faith. The scripture speaks of the work of faith. 
a faith already in possession. It's called the fruit of faith in Scripture. It always accompanies genuine saving faith. By grace, Paul says in Ephesians 2, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We're ordained to salvation in the first chapter of Ephesians. Our works are ordained by God, as we learn in the second chapter. That which comes forth through this faith in Christ is also ordained by God. Why, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God who does that. Without a faith that produced works, there's no display of a genuine saving faith. You remember James' words, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. There is the real sense in which only those who are of the faith of Christ can bring forth good works. No one else, only those who are in Christ, saved by God's grace, who belong to him, they alone can bring forth good works. And though they're not saved by their works, they alone have the capacity to perform works of righteousness, as the scripture relates. And though the ungodly and the sinner may do works, they might do works of benevolence. They might do works that benefit mankind. They might have pity on those who have need. Yet the source of those works are always from a fallen nature. They're never truly for the glory of God. You remember what the Lord Jesus will say to some on that day of judgment? As he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. In thy name done many wonderful works. Then I will profess unto them what? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity still lived in sin, still lived for themselves, still lived for the world, still did what they did in the dark. Works of righteousness can only proceed from those who by new birth have been created in righteousness and true holiness. God not only sees works he sees behind them. He sees the motive. He sees the reason. O Lord, thou search me and know me, said the psalmist. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my, my lying down and so forth. Thou understandest my thought afar off. That is, before ever it's thought, every motive, Everything behind what is said or done 
God knows. Fully there. He sees the source. He not only sees what is done. Men look at the outward appearance. Man looks at outward appearance and men like to give an appearance outwardly to men that they're righteous, they're okay. But God sees the heart. The solemn message. Then even the believer, though saved, though saved forever, saved for eternity, due to the still remaining sins of the flesh, even the believer can do things from a wrong motive. Even we who are in Christ can do things from a wrong motive. We can do what we do to be seen of men. Or to get some carnal benefit. And so those that have not come under this category of the works of righteousness or the works of faith. But those works will be brought forth as evidence in that day of genuine saving faith. Only that which is truly good, that which is good proceeds from self-denial, from self-giving, for the good of others, for the glory of God. Those things will stand forever. Everyone who truly possesses a saving faith has in some form, in some measure, works that proceed from faith in Christ and that are done to the glory of God and will show that they lived unto him who died for them and rose again. Just like the Lord Jesus spoke of the tree and its fruit in Matthew chapter 7. The good tree brings forth what kind of fruit? Good fruit. That diseased or evil tree brings forth what kind of fruit? Bad fruit. The tree is known by the kind of fruit it brings forth. Taught, of course, clearly by our Lord. One major display of true faith in Christ of the true understanding and belief in the love and self-sacrificing love of Christ is the love that believers have one for the other. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. A love patterned after his. That's a searching thing when we consider really his love and the glory of that love. We have a commandment in the new covenant with two branches. It's in 1 John 3, verse 23, that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave his commandment. This is shown in the way the saved regard and take care of those who belong to Christ. 
Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of, the love of God in him? We need to take care of God's people. The world, we don't know. There's a, there's a man who takes a sign out not far from where we live to get money, you know, when people drive by. But I happen to get up sometimes. I get up very early in the morning, and I'll go out on the porch, and I'll make sure there's no trash that I need to pick up out in the yard. Well, here I saw that man. He lives in an apartment. He's not homeless. He lives in an apartment. And lo and behold, if he wasn't going across the street to catch the bus in his work clothes, he works for the city of Richmond. So I expect he makes pretty good. And a bit of supplement by going out and looking homeless. So, I mean, we have to be careful. But you can't go wrong when you take care of God's people. When they have need. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus Christ says, if you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to who? You've done it to me. That's a good work. When done for the glory of God. When you take care of those among us who are in need. Those whose lives don't change. Who continue to live as they did before they professed faith in Christ. Who live for self. Who engage in drunkenness or lying or covetousness or fornication and the like shall not inherit the kingdom of God, as we're taught in Scripture. Because if any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creature. He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Then briefly, briefly, and I'm sure we'll be glad, Briefly, though it be by the grace of God that the believer's works are performed, yet God treats and rewards them as if they were the believers. Though God enables those things, though it's all by his grace, though without me the Lord Jesus Christ says you can do what? Nothing. Yet God treats them as if they're ours. That's an incredible thing. I'll quote you from Spurgeon. The Lord will grant unto his people an abundant reward for all that they have done. Not that they deserve any reward, but that God first gave them grace to do good works, then took their good works as evidence of a renewed heart, and then gave them a reward for what they'd done. Isn't God gracious? Isn't that amazing? It all comes from Him. By His enablement. We're here this morning, I trust and pray for the glory of God. To worship Him. Praise. Learn His word. To be challenged. To glorify his name. 
reminded of the goodness and glory of God in salvation and that we do have responsibility as his people to live unto him in self-denial and to be useful vessels in his sovereign hands for his glory. On the other hand, where the light of the gospel has been proclaimed, and yet Christ is rejected and neglected, and one remains in sinful unbelief, you know what's going to happen on the day of judgment? They're going to have a worse judgment than those who are in the vilest of immoral transgressions. We live in horrendous days. Men's minds are vitiated. It's crazy. It's crazy. I think my dear friend, Dean, put out a little note somewhere. It said, what do we need in America now? More orphanages and mental institutions. Minds are vitiated. The clearest of facts denied for political and vile reasons. Homosexuality now as if normal. It's still the sin that caused God to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 it'll be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for those who've heard the gospel and rejected. More tolerable for the vilest of sinners than those who've heard and turned from it. So, in light of redeeming love, in light of the cross, may our hearts cry, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. What surpassing joy will it be in that day to hear well done. Well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. We're called to imitate Christ with two words from him. What are they? Follow me. May God bless the ministry of his holy word. Did you say, Carolyn, there was a hymn that we were going to sing?